let me tell you about a dream I had last weekend. Last Saturday, I was staying in a budget hotel in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Uh, before going to sleep, I watched the first half of the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Last Stand, whilst eating an entire pepperoni pizza, pretty much lying on my back. I'm just trying to set the scene. But then uh, I have this dream, right? And uh, in this dream, I'm on the red carpet for a film premiere. And uh, it's my premiere, right? I'm the screenwriter of this film. Uh, I'm waving to the paparazzi, etc., etc. I look up to the front of the cinema where the name of my film is written in lights and the words say, Ebenezer Good. Who, or rather, what is Ebenezer Good? Well, if you don't know, Ebenezer Good is a novelty song by the Scottish techno group The Shaman, released in 1992. Uh, ostensibly, it's set up as a song about a kind of affable Dickensian gentleman who spends most of his time entertaining his friends. Uh, while in actual fact, it's really just a way of smuggling the words ease are good into a British pop song. Now when this song came out, uh, I think I was about 12. Needless to say, I didn't know much about rave music or ecstasy at the time. I just thought that, you know, the rave culture was taking like a new turn. I thought to myself, oh, sure, well, it's, it's, it's probably about time that rave music began to explore Victorian values and ideas retro. It brings everything back around in the end, doesn't it? Surely it wouldn't be long before DJ Slipmat started to sport a stovepipe hat or uh, Humanoid did a, uh, a concept album about Nicholas Nickleby. Despite my ignorance, like this song, like it, it clearly had stayed with me. And you know, apparently, in my dream, I had managed to adapt that song into a full 90-minute feature drama. After waking up, I tried to flesh out the idea a little bit more. What does it actually look like, the film of Ebenezer Good? End of Act 2 Crisis? What if E's aren't good, after all? And then, end of Act 3 Resolution? The E's we needed were inside us all along. All this got me thinking about dreams and whether I could dedicate an entire episode to talking about them. I mean, there's a general rule of etiquette regarding conversations about dreams, which is, in short, don't do it. You know, we're told that dreams are only interesting to the person who had them. Dreams, they're, they're psychic excreta. Keep them to yourself. And, and yet, and yet, for me, like the place where, like, where dreams get interesting are those moments where dreams start to intrude on real life. Like it's at that border, that threshold, that place where dream life and real life touch. Like I think that, that that's what interests me. Sometimes dreams give us ideas. They they solve problems for us. They pluck Oscar-worthy screenplay adaptations out of the, uh, the the ocean of our subconscious and hand them to us at the breakfast table. But they're also at the whim of our most emotional, most 
irrational anxieties. Sometimes we pull things through from the real world into our dreams. And yet sometimes it's the other way around. Imaginary Advice The object The image The reflection Age nine, my favorite thing to do in the world was to hang out at my local video rental shop. Uh, it was a little independent shop uh, owned by the mum of a girl from my school class. Uh, this is like a market town in Essex. Like most of the shops here are antique shops. Like a video shop opening here, that, that was like a really big deal. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's the biggest thing to happen in Coggeshall since the duck pond flooded. Now, this video shop, it's, uh, it's only one room. It's just a handful of shelves. It smells of cigarettes and bleach, but to me and my friends, it's paradise. You know, We spend all our pocket money here every week. Two pound for a new release, one pound 50 for an old one. The videos come in these white, unmarked boxes. One weekend, I'm at the video shop as usual. This time with another kid, who lived on my street called Simon Lappage. Simon and I, we spent ages looking at all the new releases, trying to work out which one we want. It's 1989, so I don't know, we're probably looking at Naked Gun, Inner Space, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Eventually, like, we make our decision. We decide to rent Labyrinth. Jim Henson's fantasy masterpiece starring Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie. A world where dreams become reality and reality starts to feel like a dream. We pick up the empty labyrinth box. We hand it to Debbie Hookins' mum behind the counter. She takes the box, disappears into the back room, re-emerges with a white, unmarked box. Simon and I take the box and we head back up the road. And that is the story of how you rent a videotape in 1989, the end. That's, that's, that's not the end. We get back to Simon Lappage's house. We put the video in Simon's VCR. But instead of Labyrinth, we see... Of course, Kristen. How about uh, the rest of you all tell Nancy something about yourselves? Some kids in a hospital. Well... Now, I've seen Labyrinth before, right? This is not my first rodeo. Like, so I know that what I'm seeing on screen. This isn't Labyrinth. You know, like, I'm here waiting for the bog of eternal stench. <laughs> for the Goblin Kingdom. Uh, for those pink calypso foxes that can swap heads but this is something else 
The only reason I'm in here is because uh, it's a better deal than Juvia Hall. Also, because I'm going through some very strange shit. Your dreams. I decide that it must be a trailer, so I start to fast forward the video. Still with the picture, mind you. But still goes on, these kids in a hospital, wandering around, looking scared. Now the kids are dying. It's a man in a stripy sweater. He's chasing them through a boiler room with a special glove. Stabby knife fingers. Still, like we keep fast forwarding. That must be a trailer. It must be, you know, just a trailer before the main event. Just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, so we watch all of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, on Fast Forward. It's only when the tape actually runs out that I realise what we've done. And by then, it's too late. As for the labyrinth, well, it turns out that the labyrinth runs far, far deeper than we'd realised. The old labyrinth, that's a, that's a fucking cakewalk in comparison. Oh, what's gonna happen to me? I might end up in a stinky bog, or chased by a Muppet, or David Bowie might make me his wife. Oh, boo-hoo! Do you know, I would do, I'd do anything to go back there if I could. I would do anything to be scared of marrying David Bowie again. Because, because David Bowie doesn't have massive knives for hands. No, no this, is, this is the new world. From now on, Ross, everything you know in your little nine-year-old world will be reflected back onto a single coordinate. Nightmare on Elm Street 3. A world where dreams become reality. And reality starts to feel like a dream. And that's exactly what happens for the next three years. Every night, all I dream is Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger. The prognosis. The silhouette. The touch. This is gonna sound like a lie, but it's true, I, I swear. Like, because my only experience of Freddy Krueger had been in fast forward, whenever he appeared in my dreams, it was like, it was like he moved super fast. He even had those blurry VHS tracking lines around him. You see, when I watched that VHS, like all the action, it all went by so quickly. It was like 4.45 p.m. on a weekday and Freddy was eager to clock off on time. You know, just run into the room, murder these kids, one, two, three, uh, 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 and I'm out of here, roll credits. Now, this gave my nightmares of Freddy this kind of extra terrifying dimension. He was something from another place that seemed to move in a totally different time signature. I know it sounds comical, but it made Freddy more elusive, like more mysterious. Like in the films, like you get to meet Freddy. He has dialogue, he has close-ups. Like my Freddy didn't have that. He was just this terrifying blur that ran into your bedroom and high-fived you to death. The debt, the guilt, the instruction, the silence, 
years of nightmares followed. Years of incessantly talking about Freddy Krueger to anyone who would listen, swapping stories with other kids on the playground. Our primary school had a log cabin at the top of the school field where you could sit to eat your lunch. And I remember sitting in that dark room one day as Carl Hartshorn told me that Freddy was in fact a child murderer returned from hell to kill children in their dreams. A quivering ham sandwich in my hands. The concept is just unimaginably scary. Like, Freddy isn't lurking in your garden or under your bed. He's in your head. He kills you from the inside out. Now, apparently lots of the design for Freddy Krueger was it was lifted from real-life reports of sleep paralysis. Many people have described auditory hallucinations that sound like scraping metal uh, whilst paralysed. Now, I'm not saying Freddy is real. I know he's not real. Alright, I know that. But the concept of the guy, he's so masterfully crafted from existing mysteries of the mind. He gives a face to the things that we can't understand. And that's so dangerous because personality is just much, much more seductive than science. And say so what you like about Freddy, the man, he, he, he definitely has a personality. Oh, have a teeth, bitch. Now, no matter how campy and ridiculous the Nightmare on Elm Street films became, they still all sounded terrifying when relayed through the interpretations of my classmates. <clears throat> so, so what you're telling me that there's a girl and she's like dreaming on a beach, but then Freddy is in the water using his claw like a shark's fin, you know, like the Jaws shark fin, and then Freddy eats a pizza with lots of tiny faces on it? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. How do you defeat a monster that eccentric? Like, you can't. This man, his jokes, they're just too surreal to anticipate. He's gonna kill all of us. He's gonna kill every single one of us. I had a similar problem with Ghostbusters. My granddad took me to see Ghostbusters at the cinema uh, when I was only four years old. And you know, as you might imagine, Ghostbusters, it's not a comedy when you're four. Like, you, you don't understand any of the jokes or Bill Murray's playfulness with the role. Like, you're four, you don't even know what a Bill Murray is. No, you're just a tiny child sitting in the dark, waiting for ghosts to come, screaming at your face. However, like, I, I was able to conquer my fear of Ghostbusters through repetition. Uh, I went back to see the film again. It won't hurt you. And again. It won't hurt you. I actually saw it five times in the cinema, about another 20 times on VHS. It won't hurt you. As I grew older, I, I learned the shape of the film. I, I memorized every scene until eventually I could begin to understand how it was made. It stopped being real and it became a piece of craft. Now, with Freddy Krueger, I couldn't do this because like, I had no access to the source. Like maybe if I could have rented it again, like watched it through properly, I could have conquered it. But instead, I was just stuck with him. I couldn't compartmentalize him off into the part of my brain responsible for processing fiction. 
the fact that he moved him fast forward should have done that, right? But it didn't. It didn't make him feel mediated. It actually made him feel more authentically supernatural. I couldn't process him as a real-life fear, nor as a fictional fear. He was just other. And that's why I think I couldn't let him go. I just could not shake the fear that Freddy was out there and coming for me. And what's worse, he wasn't going to drag it out. The glitch. The mistake. The product. The concept. When Wes Craven died last year, uh, I bought the box set and made myself watch all seven Nightmare on Elm Street movies again. Uh, it was odd to see them as an adult, to see how different they were from the stories that had been spun to me in playgrounds as a child. I was surprised to discover that you're pretty much meant to be rooting for Freddy by the fourth one as he slays awful, precocious valley kids, each one more annoying than the last. Like, Freddy himself, he's he's neutered by repetition. I mean, anyone who does a job too long starts to feel absurd. And it turns out that rule applies to child murdering too. Freddy, he's just got so bored of killing people, he has to come up with a special costume for every kill. He's got wigs. How do you kill Freddy Krueger? Well, turns out the approach is pretty much the same in every one of the films. You kill Freddy by grabbing him in a dream and then holding on to him tight and then waking up, which brings him from the dream world into the real world. It makes him mortal. And then you can blow him up or chop his head off or set him on fire. It doesn't matter. Dealer's choice. Now, reviewing the films again this year, uh, like it's it's these sequences that kind of quickly establish themselves as my favourites. You know, the the part where the hero has to grab Freddy in their dream, or as, as I came to know it, the Freddy hug. I grab the guy in my dream. You see me struggling, so you wake me up. We both come out. You whack the fucker, and we got him. Are you crazy? Hit him with what? You can understand or like why they do it as a hug. Like they're grabbing a guy with a terrifying glove of knives. You need to keep his arms from flailing about all over the place, don't you? I get it. But it can't help but look like a moment of a kind of bizarre reconciliation. It's like you have to forgive this guy. You gotta let him into your heart. Sure, he's trying to murder you in your sleep, but he's still a human being, you know, Freddy. He's got needs and what we perceive as just, you know, a murderous finger monster from hell is in fact just a person with their own complex emotional ecology. Now, is that the subtext of the Freddy films? That the answer is love. That by loving our enemies, we can finally pull them out of our fantasies and bring them into our reality. Is it like that time a few years ago when I was visiting my parents and I went to the village pub and I saw sitting at the bar 
Chris Jolin, the guy who had bullied me through most of secondary school, the guy who had once waved a hypodermic needle in my face and threatened to stab me in the neck with it for the entertainment of his friends, who I thought about almost every single day that I went to school, angry and powerless, then spent the 15 years since school fantasizing about murdering if I had an opportunity dumping him in a shallow Essex grave, probably the farmland behind our village, his body forever guarded by Scots pine and diseased badges, his ragged, helter-skelter bomber jacket, now a black flag rippling in the treetops while his Ford Fiesta rusted away at the bottom of a pond, ducks laughing outrageously upon the surface of the water, as if my vengeance was a hilarious joke that they couldn't get enough of. But, like, in instead, you know, when I came face to face with my tormentor, to suddenly be trapped in the same room as this fellow human being who had woken up in the same village as me this morning, who had dressed themselves and chosen a form of breakfast, a man who had a name and a height and a star sign, who could be described, 5'10", short blonde hair, nice lips. Like, seeing him face to face, I, I, I found my hatred slowly draining away as if his file was being transferred to a different part of my brain no longer being used by the emotional creative right side responsible for making all my nightmares the file was now being used by the logical rational left side of my brain the part responsible for critical thinking and making small talk i pulled chris jolin out of my dreams and into the real world, awarding him the same kind of disinterested ambivalence that I give all people in the real world. I nodded and smiled and asked him how he was doing and felt the familiar boredom that accompanies all human interactions. Once upon a time, this man had scared me almost as much as Freddy Krueger, but all that had been a dream. And I can see that now. Is this little anecdote proof that I learned something from A Nightmare on Elm Street? Perhaps it's the closest thing I'll ever get to a third act resolution. A way to take a lesson, any lesson, from the nightmares of childhood. Perhaps the moral of this story is that Fear is irrational and that love is the solution, no matter how stabby the subject. But that doesn't work, does it? Now, that's not right. Even within the world of Nightmare on Elm Street, that, that's not an accurate reading. Because the thing is, Freddy always comes back. You think you've brought him into the real world, but the boundary always slips away. ...behind Elvis Presley's first million-selling single, Heartbreak Hotel. The strains of which can be heard here on BBC One in West Beach, where the king lives on. When I was 13, I finally found a way back to Elm Street. I was babysitting one night when I saw that the first film was scheduled to be on telly at midnight. I decided to stay up and watch it, knowing that this would be the best way to overcome my fear. I would face Freddy, I would see him die, and then I would no longer be afraid. Sure enough, the plot went through its cycle. 
lead girl Nancy makes a plan. She goes to sleep. She finds Freddy. She hugs him, wakes up, brings him into the real world where she runs him through a series of Home Alone style booby traps. I, I remember forcing myself to laugh so hard for that sequence. It's not funny, but it had to be funny. Like, I knew that. I had to believe that. I had to make Freddy silly, otherwise this whole confrontation would all be for nothing. Gets to the end. Freddy is set on fire. He's defeated. Happy ending. Everyone Freddy has killed magically comes back to life. And I think to myself, phew, it's over. And then, just as Nancy's resurrected mother is waving her daughter goodbye on the porch of her house, Freddy's hand appears and pulls her back through the window, and that's the end. Oh my god, it's executed so badly in the film. The mother clearly turns into a mannequin in a wig, and the window she's pulled through is weirdly small. You, you watch her now as an adult, and it is funny. It's funny. It's like fake legs. Zip! There, straight through the window. Like you, If you watched it, like you will laugh out loud. When I watched it, age 13... I did not laugh out loud. I just sat there, frozen, staring at the TV all the way to the end of the credits. Like, I should have seen it coming, but I knew there were sequels all the same. I couldn't work it out. Like, both me and Nancy, like, we both confronted Freddy. We pulled him into the real world. Why had the plan failed? Well, perhaps it didn't fail entirely. That still was the night that I could finally reconcile Freddy Krueger as a piece of fiction. Like, I couldn't do that before. You can't hug something and fast forward. But now I could finally bring him into my world. And that much was true. But there's a caveat to that breakthrough. A little extra sentence added on to the end. Fear always comes back. Freddy always comes back. And sure, that sentence is probably just producer Robert Shea of New Line Cinema just trying to make sure that things are set up for a sequel but in doing so Robert Shea might have accidentally hit upon something important the rules we use to defeat fear never ever work that irrational fear that we tried to confront and rationalize it always returns we believed that by confronting these fears we were bringing them into the real world when in actual fact there is no real world the real world is just another part of the dream you can't separate the left brain and the right brain that's scientific fallacy we are always dreaming trapped between what's real and what isn't the dream is everything the best we could hope for moments of lucidity there's no way to fully wake up, to escape it, but we can control it. The pattern. The formality. The inevitability. In the horror film Halloween, the monster, he's called Michael Myers, right? 
Uh, and over time, the character, he gets a whole backstory to explain like how he becomes who he is. But uh, in the stage directions of the original script, he's not mentioned by name. He's just called The Shape. The Shape. Now, I think there's something deeply scary about that. It's great. We're, we're, we're familiar with horror movies describing their monster as a thing. But a shape? A shape is just that that one extra degree removed from being a person. As such, like I think the word shape, it just gets a lot closer to that abstracted, irrational aspect of fear. Recently, I put the question on Facebook asking uh, people for more monster abstractions. And we ended up with about 100 responses, which is actually, that's what we've been hearing in the background throughout this entire episode. The Glimmer. The question. Thanks to everyone who sent me one of those. I really can imagine every single one of them coming to kill me. The absence. Oh, I like that one. The absence, the hole, the gap, rather than there's something there. You're shouting, there's something missing. There's something not there. The outline, the form, the future. The end. Now you turn my world, you precious thing. You starve and near exhaust me. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. Run so long, run so far. Your eyes can be so cruel. Just as I can be so cruel. Oh, I do believe in you. Yes, I do. Advice. So that's the end of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If uh, if you want to help me make more episodes, uh, I've got a Patreon page. That's p a t r e o n dot com page. Uh, I'll, I'll put I'll put the link to it in the liner notes of the episode. Uh, basically, Patreon allows you to pledge small monthly donations to keep the podcast going. Um, thanks to everybody who is continuing to support the podcast in that way. Uh, I can't stress enough just how much difference that makes. Uh, making new episodes, uh, it takes a lot of time and, uh, and, and, and your support really helps. Special thanks to our new supporters, Joe T and Aaron May A, 
lucrative Christmas song come to you in a dream? There's, a, there's one other thing which I wanted to quickly mention, which is that uh, an, a, a previous episode of Imaginary Advice, I think it's uh, episode nine, it's the, the, the Wash Club episode. Uh, if, you, if you don't know that one, it's, uh, it's the true story of how... Uh, when I was at university, I tried to investigate a uh, secret society of kids that were meeting up at the campus laundrette and uh, testing their endurance by getting inside the tumble dryers. Uh, and over the course of trying to investigate this group, I ended up accidentally becoming the ringleader of it. Um, that, that story uh, is now being turned into uh, a short film. I've been working on the script of it. Uh, over the last couple of months uh, it's set to start filming hopefully before the end of summer uh, we've had some support from creative england which is helping us get off the ground but um we're still we still don't have enough money to finish this film so if you'd like to support the uh, the, the film of wash club then uh, I'll, I'll put the uh, link to that as well in, uh, in the liner notes. Uh, there's lots of great perks that you can get uh, in return for supporting different amounts, including being able to commission your own poem off me, and uh, there's a whole bunch of kind of laundrette-related paraphernalia uh, as well. Even if you couldn't afford to support it, if you were willing to to mention it on Facebook or repost that link, you, you know, you'd be doing us uh, a, 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 a solid. Right, okay, well, that, that's enough hand-wringing requests for money. Okay, that's it, that's it for me uh, and for my cat. Can you hear him? Here he is. That's the end of Imaginary Advice. Thanks for listening.